my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm the shattered remains of DC after a comedian made a few jokes. <laughs> I'm Tommy. On the pod today, our interview with CNN host and author of the new novel, The Hellfire Club, old friend of the pod, Jake Tapper. Hellfire Club? I feel like that's a nickname for what the Washington Press Corps is trying to do to Michelle Wolf. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got it. Jake was here in studio earlier today. It was such a great conversation. It went a little long and we're just going to make it most of the pod. He was like a co-host today yeah we had a great time with jake well look you know, it's good when you get a rookie broadcaster in the room for the first time and they, they you know he's a natural he was, a natural. He was like yeah. a duck to water yeah that jake tapper you know he could uh he could relate to one of those uh, terribly offensive jokes about sarah huckabee sanders because jake is famous for throwing softballs <laughs> oh boy <laughs> isn't the joke there that it's the opposite like yeah so yeah. we're good yeah, we're good he has tough questions. We're Let's not, not get meta. We're, we're on not a time Mich- crunch. We're not here. Michelle Wolfing you. <laughs> <laughs> you got some tickets to Love or Leave It? Everyone go on the website. Oh, yeah. Them. Go to this is the uh, last chance to get tickets for the Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Columbus shows that are this weekend, and they're going to be awesome. We're going to do a special show about social media that'll be in uh, Columbus and in Baltimore. And then we have a great show lined up for Pittsburgh, too. So get some tickets. I think Pittsburgh may be sold out, but I don't know. Fantastic. This weekend. <laughs> Go this get This weekend. And we had an awesome love to leave it with Larry Wilmore and Grace Para and Paul Downs and Travis Helwig did a rant. Nagin Farsad was there. It was delightful. It was delightful. Also on the pod today, we'll be talking to the host of Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. Okay. Comedian Michelle Wolf destroyed journalism and re-elected Donald <laughs> Trump on Saturday night by making jokes about the fact that his White House press secretary lies every day. Uh, did I pretty much get that right? Yeah. Covered uh, it. So Michelle told some jokes. Michelle, who was a guest on Love It or Leave It. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Delightful. Delightful. Um, Wonderful comedian. Incredibly funny. We, we incredibly all, talented. We all just actually watched it for the first time in the office. She made jokes about the press. She made jokes about reporters. She made jokes about Hillary Clinton, about Democrats, Trump, Trump's staff, Kellyanne Conway, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That was the subject of all the consternation. So she makes these jokes. The Trump jokes and the Huckabee jokes, they piss off some Republicans. It all sort of kicks off on Twitter Saturday night with uh, Matt Schlapp, the head of CPAC, who tweeted, My wife, Mercedes Schlapp, and I walked out early from the White House Correspondence Center. Enough of elites mocking all of us. Uh, he is a Koch brothers lobbyist who left 10 minutes early and then went to the after party. Uh, <laughs> Which is actually just like a smart move. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, no, like, I've uh, done that to the yeah, dinner. Yeah, get out of there early, get to the after parties. Sean Spicer said it was a disgrace. Well, and takes one, he takes one to no one. <laughs> Uh, so that was all fine. That I also respect. Of course they're going to do that. But then all the reporters jumped in and they were very upset. Peter Baker said, unfortunately, I don't think we advanced the cause of journalism tonight. Jeff Zeleny agreed. It was an embarrassment in the room and surely to the audience at home. Mika Brzezinski, Andrea Mitchell said that Michelle Wolf owes an apology to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Chris Eliza is very upset. What do you guys make of all this? I'm so sick of us <laughs> pretending that we're shocked by these jokes every single year. Like I get it. If, you're, if you know someone personally... 
even if you don't like them, and someone says something to them that kind of is mean about their appearance or whatnot, it's totally fine to be personally offended by that. It is ludicrous to pretend that this dinner is about the First Amendment. It is not. You can't, though, say that this is about the First Amendment and then say, but your joke was too mean. Like, if you don't see the obvious contradiction there, you're an idiot. And, and on top of that, like, so, you know, we talk about this with Jake as well. If your issue is, is basic decency and that Trump doesn't treat people well uh, and we should call him out for it, we should call this comedian for doing so too, that's fine by me. But like, give me a break that we shouldn't call out these people for lying brazenly for a living every day and getting famous and making money down the road off it. Give me a goddamn break. Yeah, I mean, look, it was an, she spoke for roughly 18 minutes. Mm. It's good. It was a tight set. Sometimes people go too long. <laughs> too long. But uh, and, and so... There's this criticism, oh, it was crass or it was vulgar in some way. Well, you know, she's talking about a vulgar and crass administration. She's talking about porn stars, when she's talking about grabbing people by the pussy. She is using the words of the president that deserve to be called out. Mm -hmm. Now, and so there was a bunch of right-wing people that were like, oh, it was vulgar and crass beyond measure. Okay, guys, give us a break. We know what you defend every single day. We know what Sean Spicer defended every day, the kind of personal attacks he looked like. All these people are ridiculous. Now, if you want to isolate two Sarah Huckabee Sanders jokes that there is a debate about whether they may have in some way been at least partially referencing her opinions. Is that if that if that is ultimately what we're talking about, an 18 minute set of jokes about literally everyone, Democrat or Republican, reporters and politicians, everybody. Mm-hmm. And you want to say, OK, two of these jokes, to my mind, may have gone too far. That's that's what we're going to debate for two days. That's why the White House Correspondents Association is issuing an apology. That's why Axios is saying that Donald Trump won the evening because you're saying maybe two jokes out of what? A hundred jokes may have in some way referenced a person's appearance. A woman who works for a person who insults people based on their appearance every single fucking day. Yeah, like, here's where it went over the line for me. If you do not like a joke, that is fine. If you don't think a joke is funny, no big deal. If you think a joke is mean, that's fine too. Everyone's entitled to their opinion to say, that joke wasn't funny, that joke's mean. Where it drives me fucking nuts is that we go from people offering their opinions about the jokes to saying that this is giving Trump a win, that this is not advancing the cause of journalism. When the fuck was the last time we advanced the cause of journalism at a White House Correspondents' Center? Never. Right. Like, And some Trump officials or the spouses of Trump officials stormed out and said they were done being mocked by elites. You are the elites. Yeah. The comedian was speaking on behalf of the rest of the country that is sick of your lying bullshit. And for journalists to rally around them and not speaking truth and to cling to their euphemisms drives me crazy. And like, by the way, Donald Trump was in Michigan where he gave a ranting hour and 15 minute tirade where they chanted lock her up and he threatened to release secret dirt on a United States senator. Like there are more important things to be offended about Washington. But yeah, we're on day seven of this idiocy. I can't. It is so embarrassing for the White House Correspondents Association to have invited Michelle Wolf. They knew her comedy. They You can see it on Netflix. They know. She was, and when they invited her, they put out a statement praising her truth to power style. <laughs> and Margaret Taylor said her, quote, feminist edge make her the voice right now. And then last night, this is what the statement says. The program was meant to offer a unifying message about our common commitment to a vigorous press, and the speaker did not do. The speaker's message was not unifying. It's like, not you know what? Job. You're the press, though. It's, it's not the press's job to host an event that is fucking unifying. Their job is to report the facts. Their goal is the truth. Their goal is not unity. Their goal is not civility. And their goal is not to persuade Republicans that they're objective. Their goal is to be objective. This is the difference. It's like they, they cannot get out of this mindset that their job is to come 
come off as balanced above all else. That is not their job. When the you job have is to a gangrenous, the truth. when you have a gangrenous limb, the goal is not to unify with it; it's to get it off. <laughs> <laughs> it just—it's this—it's the obsession, you know. Like it, it just goes to show that like working the refs works. Republicans have been working the refs for decades now, mm-hmm. and they have done a fantastic job because in the reporters' minds all the time, in way too many Washington reporters' minds, is this idea like. I have to be very careful because I do not want to be seen as biased. That is, that's the worst right. sin the, possible. The thing that offended me the most this weekend when I was scrolling through Twitter or, or looking through an email and someone just <laughs> shoved a photo of the Mooch and Michael Avenatti, Storm and Daniels' lawyer, like, you know, bumming around together. Like one was like <laughs> holding the other and has fist up like he was a boxer. That chumminess that you have an idiot who worked in Washington for 10 days before he got canned, that you have a lawyer who just like loves to be on TV and they come together and they find common ground at this celebration of self-importance. Like that shit drives me crazy. That is why people hate Washington. It it's is. not because someone told a mean joke. It's it is because, it, because, it, because it makes people at home watch these cable news shows where everyone's yelling at each other and they yell at each other on cable on these on these news shows and then they see them at the correspondence center and they're all buddy buddy yeah, and they're cosplay. like so was the whole thing a fucking act like do you not really believe the things that you're saying on tv because you're all buddy buddies now it's also michelle wolf like okay she used some vulgar language she made some vulgar references her message, what she was addressing, kind of the spirit of what she said, wasn't vulgar at all. There is a morality to what she was saying. There's a kind of an, an ethic to her jokes about speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. about pointing out hypocrisy, pointing out lies, pointing out people who are not serving their country, who are doing the wrong thing all the time. Washington right now is vulgar. Our political culture is vulgar and crass and broken and disgusting. It's disgusting. What's happening yeah. in Washington is gross beyond measure every single day. And the fact that there's a room full of people who wanted to put on tuxedos and nice dresses and pretend that wasn't true for a night, I'm sorry that this comedian shook you from that. I'm sorry that that you wanted to pretend that we were still in 2012 when we had a president who was a decent human being and who could take a joke without losing his shit, uh, yeah. who was respectable. But I, we're not. I've been. We've all been to the dinner. Like there was definitely a time where I thought, okay, there's some value to bringing together people who wouldn't necessarily talk and you like have a drink with the guy who works for Paul Ryan or a reporter you don't know very well. And you like you connect on a different level that actually makes that next interaction you have on email or on the phone better. There's there's actual value that there's not value to Washington being perceived as or actually circling the wagons in the way Lovett said and defending itself. It's like this little organism that is like defending off reality at all costs. And, and it, it's just, it should upset people. And just, and one more note on handed Trump a win, the handed Trump a win. <laughs> you have no idea. You go fucking find me a voter out there who was like, you know what? I was thinking about voting against Donald Trump in 2020, but then that comedian made fun of his press secretary at the dinner with the reporters, and now I am for him. I am for Donald Trump. That is the most fucking patronizing view of voters in this country coming from reporters yeah. who think that this hands Donald Trump a political win. And it's how you, it's how you launder kissing Sarah Huckabee Sanders' ass through the guise of some analysis that's based on no you th- evidence. You think that little of voters... They don't you think th- anything of voters. They but don't that, have any opinion of voters. It's what they're like say- that. It is don't a bunch s- of people 
pretending <laughs> to have an opinion. They're looking around and thinking, I know what I should think right now. It's not what they think. Maybe they didn't like some of the jokes. Maybe they didn't like the other jokes. The notion that these people were offended is made up. It's nonsense. Oh, these poor people. These poor people. Their delicate sensibilities. They couldn't handle the jokes. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. This is nonsense. This is a... The White House Correspondents' Dinner is now a zombie. It died when Barack Obama left office, and then all of a sudden, everybody was sleeping in their beds, and they thought they were safe, and then the White House Correspondents' Dinner, cold and gray and dead, beat on the doors of Washington (laughs) to eat the brains of the White House press corps, and it succeeded. (laughs) Okay, we gotta do real news, because then we're just like them. Um, (laughs) At a news conference on Monday, President Trump said that killing the Iranian nuclear deal would, quote, send the right message to North Korea. Uh, right on the heels of a weekend in which North and South Korea took historic steps to come to an agreement about the North's nuclear program. The same time today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stepped up pressure on the United States to pull out of the nuclear deal. Uh, he had a primetime mm-hmm. address on Israeli TV where he presented what he called evidence of a secret Iranian nuclear weapons program. This was to be evidence that Iran wasn't uh, sticking to the deal. Tommy, talk us through this. What's going on So, here? pretty interesting that the Mossad and the, the Israeli uh, intelligence service managed to get all these secret Iranian documents out of Iran. Like, good for them. That's impressive. Essentially, what they put forward evidence of an Iranian nuclear program years ago. There was no evidence of violations by Iran of the agreement since the deal went into effect in early 2016. So... It seems like this was a, a effort to spin up old-ish intelligence, new documents, but sort of old news that shows that, you know, they did intend to have a nuclear program at one point along the line. They haven't discarded the know-how, the manuals, the knowledge, if they were to pick it up in the future again. But, you know, he's trying to create cover for Trump to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. It seems pretty obvious to me. We'll see if it works. I mean, I think most experts you see are, like, you know, impressive in one sense – you know, another reason not to trust them, but it doesn't show that he's violated the spirit of the deal. How is killing the deal sending the right message to North Korea? I, know. That, I mean, it's up is down, black is white. You know, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know why you would cut a deal with the United States after we told another country that we will no longer live up to a deal that we had just made to watch. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, I, I don't see any indication at this point that there's any hope that Trump stays in this deal. Me either. And of course, mm-hmm. all of this came after Trump received cheers from supporters at a speech on Saturday, which they all chanted, no bell, no bell. <laughs> it's true. You know, when Barack Obama <laughs> got the Nobel Peace Prize, his reaction was basically, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Okay. Yeah. Like he understood that he didn't it go was on a ridiculous. campaign for it. He didn't go on a campaign for it. He didn't have people chanting it at rallies. He was sort of embarrassed by it and wrote a speech that was a, honestly kind of scolding towards the Nobel Committee in response to you know, getting this thing prematurely. But the notion that like, let's just wait till the negotiations are over. We all want this to work out. But I mean, Kim Jong-un six, eight, 10 months ago was tweeting or releasing statements that he was going to nuke us or blow up Japan or, you know, burn the planet to the ground. Now he's being really nice. Do we think the now part of this is sincere or that maybe he's being a little duplicitous? Like they've done every step along the way in the past, you know, like, Seeing everyone leap to get ahead of this and and start talking about awards is ridiculous. I like that they were chanting Nobel, Nobel right before they were chanting lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Which, though that's not offensive, 
that the president holds a rally, by the way, where his supporters are cheering to, uh, chanting to lock up his former political opponent that's for totally nothing. Cool, John. That's that's not offensive at all. He, he, the Sarah Huckabee Sanders joke, though, that was over the line. The jokes of old during the campaign was like, oh God, imagine nuclear negotiations or the nuclear button being under Donald Trump's finger. Like his ego could destroy not one, but two nuclear agreements in the next couple of months. This is a terrifying situation we're in right now. Yeah. This is why it would be great if the Correspondents Association spent a little more time talking about, you know, shit that mattered. Like President Trump hasn't had a news conference in over a year. Let's also doesn't see, about that. Don't see a lot of statements about that. Not not releasing the statements. But the big discussion now is reform. How do we reform the dinner next year? Let's Look, have the a debate. Bottom line is, uh, How must we reform hand, the dinner? I'm the kind of person where when I see a comedian make an inappropriate joke, I speak out. <laughs> when I see the most powerful human being on planet Earth who commands the most awesome military might in the history of Earth, I sometimes speak out. You know, mm-hmm. I think they're the same thing to compare. One is the president. The other is a comedian. Equal footing to me. I just take him as a team. I don't like bullying from anybody. That's me. The guy that doesn't like bullying from anybody. Straight cheater. When we come back, Jake Tapper. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's th- going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Jake Tapper, welcome to Pod Save America. Okay, I'm a little nervous. I will admit, having been on the other end. Welcome. Thank you, Tommy. Welcome to Thunderdome. (laughs) Oh no, it's love, it's here. (laughs) What's going to happen? This is your first time, although you were a frequent guest on Keeping It 1600 back in the day. I would appear. I can't I believe appear. we haven't had you on Pod Save America. Well, I haven't out here. I haven't I been out here. Do we, I mean, do we need to provide for the uh, listener any context that uh, 
I will just say that I was a huge pain in your butts for eight to ten years. So I don't know I was, what you're talking about. I was. I, would, I, would, I, would, I thought we had very pleasant exchanges. We called you the softy. <laughs> we, we told Obama, go out there, you go, you ask Jake for the first question. Yeah, yeah, I would say any Trump administration official listening who thinks Jake is too mean to them, just know that one time Jake and I got in an argument so heated that someone looped in his wife to calm us both down. <laughs> so that's, that's where we were. Yeah, there, and there are, I mean, that's not including when Gibbs and I were going to meet each other outside by yeah. the North Lawn. Physical fight. There literally was going to, when those when those emails are foiled, we were going to meet each other out by the, by the North Lawn. Yeah. yeah, it got an unceremonious fight. I think. <laughs> yeah, it would not a two punch fight. I think. It, it who would have? Who would have won? I think it's who got the first one in. Honestly, I think it's a, a luck of the draw. On that I'll one. say this: Gibbs is meaner, so I think he, he might have won the fight. He would have just gone right in and hit in the face before I did it. Could do anything. I'll bark, no bite, Robert Gibbs. You think? You know that. A lot of barking. <laughs> a lot of barking. <laughs> you have a new book. It's called The Hellfire Club. It is a historical thriller. That but it's your first novel. First novel, uh, yeah, first novel. It takes place in 1954, and uh, a young congressman comes to town and gets swept up in a conspiracy, and there's a lot in there that is, I think, fun, interacting with real people from the time, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and then... You know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think there's a lot of rhyming. If anybody knows anything about the 50s and Joe McCarthy, there's a lot of rhyming to today. What made you write a novel? Um, learning just a bunch of cool things about Washington and wanting to write about them. And also uh, wanting to write about how corrupting Washington can be and how there are good guys and bad guys, but how it's a town built on compromise and how corroding that can be sometimes. And I just thought that it would be more effective and fun. To do fiction. Is yeah. that how you vent as a newsman who has to like keep it straight? You write a fictional character and just kind of... Yeah, because I, I could have them do whatever I wanted and, you know. You know, you talk about corrupting influence and I think there's a lot of people looking at what's happening in D.C. today and they see not a question of legal versus illegal corruption, but people who have compromised their yeah. values to work with Trump. Yep. Uh, and that there's a lot of liberals who say, oh, these are a bunch of people acting in bad faith and that they shouldn't be taken seriously at all. And then on the other hand, there are people who say, well, these are the representatives of the White House and you have to talk to them. You have to treat them with respect. Do you believe that when people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders or people like Kellyanne Conway come on your show, mm -hmm. that they are speaking in good faith? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, it's individual by individual, right? I think, for instance, the last time I had Kellyanne Conway come on the show, Oh my God! It was a scandal, but it was so. There was like thirty scandals ago, so I don't even remember it was what yeah, she was talking remember. about. It was a, Rob Porter. It was about Rob Porter, uh, the Rob uh, Porter yeah. story. Um, so she came on to talk about. Do I think that she was speaking in good faith? I think that she was a senior advisor to the president during a scandal, and she came on the show to give her perspective and give the administration's perspective. But obviously, there's a lot of lies that are told by this White House, and there's a lot of bad faith. And I mean, I, I've made no secret about the fact that they are constantly trying to undermine credibility and. In journalism, not just individual journalists or individual stories, but and you, there was a poll last week showing a majority of Republican voters think that the press is the enemy of the American people. I mean, the president is succeeding, and it's mm -hmm. it's horrible for democracy. Just following up on that scandal question, I mean, normally a Washington scandal goes like this. It's like big report on scandal, followed by defensive press briefing, tepid statement of support, more journalists descend on the story, more stuff comes out pressure builds, they get canned, right? right? That's happened a few times, but Scott Pruitt, Ben Carson, Ryan Zinke, they have sort of defied political gravity. Does that lack of accountability worry you long-term? I mean, what does it mean in Washington if you can just shout fake news and ignore 
real corruption like we've seen with some of these people. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, one of the issues for those stories is that President Trump is such a big story in a pejorative way, in a negative way, that it crowds out a lot of the other news about other cabinet secretaries. Um, So that's one. I mean, he uh, is this enormous presence. Two, yes, absolutely, the fake news thing. I mean, from the very beginning, and I think I've been saying this since the very beginning, the whole purpose of fake news is to undermine when the media provides oversight, the oversight that I would point out the legislative branch is supposed to be conducting, but they're not, mm-hmm. when the media provides oversight that they can just say it's fake news and um, thus undermine facts and truth. And it, it is troublesome. It's obviously very, very worrisome. I don't understand... Um, I mean, you see glimpses here and there of members of Congress with integrity, uh, Republicans saying or doing things that make me think, okay, well, they get it. They understand. Like, for instance, Johnny Isaacson, the senator Mm -hmm. who chairs the Veterans Affairs Committee, he had John Tester do the dirty work, but he has not said anything negative about John Tester, even while President Trump is attacking Tester and threatening Tester and alluding to things he knows about Tester, you know, so – that's something that is oversight. And now, for some reason, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who is this American hero, according to President Trump, uh, according to administration sources, is not going to be returned to his job as a chief medical doctor at the White House. Which, by the way, I let me just turn the tables for one second. Yeah. You guys worked at the White House when yeah. Ronnie Jackson was there, and he was very, he got all these positive reviews from President Obama. Did you hear of anything like this? No. No. I was going to say, like, I knew that when, because originally Dr. Coleman was there. And Ronnie was like his number two. And I remember when Coleman left and Ronnie took over, I heard some rumors that they had had a falling out. That was literally the only negative thing I had heard about yeah. Ronnie. But again, I, mean, I said this on the pod last week, like he was our doctor. And so we interacted with him that way. Like most of these allegations are from people who worked for him. Right. And, you know, there is a difference sometimes between people who manage up and manage down. Right. right? And so they could very well be true. It's just that those of us who interacted with them, or at least me, like I didn't notice anything. Did that. he hand out pills freely? Did he give you guys Ambien? Did he give you prescription drugs without a prescription? Did he? No. I mean, he's, a, he's your doctor. If you're going on a 10-day flight to Asia and you get a tiny little baggie with two Ambien to help you right. on one of the three nights when you're just physically not going to fall asleep, is what would always happen to me. Absolutely, you could go to him for those things, but I don't know how that's somehow deemed inappropriate. When I could go to a travel clinic next to a CVS and do the same get the thing. same thing, yeah. right? I mean, one and time we s- were at Studio Fifty Four, <laughs> and uh, he said to me, "This one will make you small, and this one will make you big." And uh, I took them both, and I stayed the same. Uh, so that was my story. But they did; they would do. You've always been the Alice in Wonderland of my, of my life, John Lovett. You'd go to the med unit for physicals; they'd check you out. So then, by the time, whether it was Ronnie or the nurses or some of the other doctors, they'd come to you on the plane and be like, "Okay, do you know how to take this?" They'd write it down, and so like it would be a very formal thing it wasn't just like hey you take a pill let me let me i'll just say this because all right so i got a an award from the white house correspondent association over the weekend me and my my cnn team shooto evan perez and carl bernstein the first time I, the, thank you the first it's a shame time I, right before washington fell apart because of michelle wolf it's actually <laughs> meaningless now we don't even remember what the words mean so the first time i won that award it was because i broke the story that your nominee obama's nominee to be secretary of the health and human services Tom Daschle <laughs> hadn't paid taxes on a driver, driver, driver. that he'd been given. Yeah. He didn't pay taxes on a car service. The guy couldn't be in the cabinet. <laughs> it's pretty, I mean, relatively, it's pretty incredible. So let me, but let me just say, I didn't, hey, man, I'm not the one that held up his nomination. I just reported on it. But let I'm me just say this. You. I'm out of but, the world. But this is what happened. I got the story. I went to you guys. 
Next thing I knew, somebody from somebody who was working with Dashiell called me. We talked about it. I broke the story. There was no fake news. There was no attacks on me. I had the story right. It wasn't good for you. It wasn't good for Dashiell. And then it was all just up to the Senate after mm-hmm. that. And then and then Dashiell withdrew his nomination. And you're right. In the context of today's swamp, it seems bizarre. Like, why couldn't he just write a check and move on? But that said, you know, this is the world we're in. And what if you had done what Trump does? What if, you know, fake news, not true, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it wasn't even, he didn't even, so he was supposed to have two jobs. He was supposed to be HHS secretary, and then he was going to run healthcare reform from inside the White House, which Nancy Anderpearl ended up doing. He didn't even, once his nomination went down, we didn't even make him advisor in the White House, which we didn't need Senate confirmation for, because we were so worried that he had this this mini scandal that we were like, okay, we're going to be extra careful and not even have him. No, I mean, it is incredible, the degradation of, of standards. Incredible. Let's talk about the White House Correspondents' Dinner that uh, ruined America on Saturday. So the Correspondents' Association said when they invited Michelle Wolf that they liked that she speaks truth to power. (laughs) And then last night they put out a statement saying that her monologue was not in the spirit of their mission. What did you think of that statement and what did you think of the dinner? I mean, my general... First of all, she made fun of me, and nobody is out there defending me, which is very <laughs> hurtful. She did a whole thing about me, and what, 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 what? I think that, I think it's the kind of joke, yeah, she made fun of you, but she sort of singled you out as someone she liked. She wasn't as mean to me as Obama was, if that's what you mean, with Ob- Obama's well, joke. You mean, mean, Lovett, you mean Lovett's joke? Lovett's joke that Obama read. <laughs> well, with, actually, again, similarly, Obama it was, was a like, compliment. Should I keep this in here? It's a little tough. It's and really like, keep rough. it in. Well, really I remember the, the first draft of the joke was just, <clears throat> it just said, F. Jake Tapper five times, <laughs> oh, and then he locked, knocked the podium over. And Here we go. You're a magician. I don't know how you got Lovett to talk about <laughs> previous correspondence speech <laughs> jokes Excuse that he's written. Me. What a, what I know, a, I cracked what the a code. triumph of journalism this is. So I will say. So, let me, so, so let, let me say this. I'm not like the comedy police. I'm not going to come in here and tell you which jokes I laughed at, which ones I thought were inappropriate. Some of them I laughed at, some of them I didn't. But I will say this. I have been trying to have on my show a conversation about decency for the last two and a half, three years, about what is appropriate to say in the public sphere and what is not appropriate to say in a public sphere. And the position, the times I've like taken positions on my show, because I don't take positions on tax reform or immigration or the wall or North Korea, whatever stuff you guys take positions on. I don't do that. Um, But I do try to take a position on facts and I do try to take a position on decency. So we've been having this conversation for two and a half, three years. If the Trump White House and Trump supporters in the media want to have this conversation now about decency, I welcome them to the Mm -hmm. table, but they've got some catching up to do before we get to a comedian at the White House Correspondents Association dinner. We have discussions to have about the way that women are talked about, the way that women's faces are talked about, Carly Fiorina's face, about the way that disabled people, people with disabilities are referred to. Just a few weeks ago, the president made a derisive comment about one of his own former aides with an alcohol and drug dependency issue. I mean... If we're going to talk about decency, I'm all for it. And Michelle Wolf can be part of that conversation, but there's really a big backup of material before we get to that. Yeah. I agree with you on the decency debate. Like, Trump should apologize to Serge Kovaleski, whom he made fun of for having a disability before. He still denies it. He still denies it. He still denies it. So, like, there's that gaslighting that goes on. But I, I think one of the things that people love about your show, your reporting, is that you're not a big euphemism guy. You don't sit up there and accuse people of dissembling or stating falsehoods. You say you're lying. And I wish more journalists did that. I wish more people spoke the way Michelle Wolf did at the Correspondence Dinner and spoke truth to power and, and didn't 
fudge it for us. Like, isn't that what we want out of journalism? Isn't that what a First Amendment event should celebrate? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think the lie reference to Singer or Sanders and the smoky eye, which I had to look up, by the way. I don't know what I didn't know what it was. Um, I got it. There's just never any gay people with me. I just like <laughs> you I just, got it immediately. You knew what a smoky eye was. Yes, I knew what a smoky eye was. I didn't have any friends in high school. I somehow <laughs> found out what a smoky it's eye. A, it's, it's just it's a little a, black, just sort of a nice. You know what? We'll do with it later. <laughs> People that. tweeted Tommy what a smoky eye. It's a nice is. thing though. It's a it's a yeah, good. It's, just it's, a a, um, it's like um like kind of like a, it's just like a way of doing the makeup so there's kind of like kind of dark around the eye. It, the, the smoky eye wasn't necessarily the insult. The insult was the, the Kardashian. The, the insult was okay. the reference to Aunt Lydia on um what's Hamid's, that show? But also that's how she acts, not how she. <laughs> have you looked at a picture of Aunt Lydia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, a, you don't think that she was also making the comparison <laughs> that they look a little bit alike? You don't think that was part of it? I think uh, that was part undoubtedly. Yeah. Okay. So and then also the the female softball coach i mean the, mm. she was look she was making jokes about how sarah sanders looks i mean i think she was more important were the jokes she was making about how sarah sanders conducts herself right i mean but she was making jokes about how sarah right. sanders looks sarah sanders looks i don't know why we would pretend otherwise and look i mean that's not my cup of tea but uh at the same time again i, I find it difficult to get upset about what a comedian says in a dinner that you know a couple million people watch versus a tone that is being set nationally by the president of the United States. The uh, Van Jones, who you guys know and respect, Mm -hmm. has this thing he talks about, about how a president is a spiritual leader, whether he wants to be or not. That he talks about how John F. Kennedy inspired people to join the Peace Corps. He talks about how Ronald Reagan inspired people to go to Wall Street. I would add, he probably, Reagan probably also inspired people to join the military. Barack Obama, uh, for all the criticisms and tough coverage I provided of Barack Obama, there's no question that he inspired Millions of people recruited uh, for ISIS. Just provided uh, Fox and Friends their leads. <laughs> the, the, no, he, there's no way. There's no way that he didn't inspire millions of people on issues having to do with race and issues yeah. of having to be a good father and that sort of thing. It's inevitable. It just is. Presidents inspire people that way. Look at uh, the outpouring that Barbara Bush. People legitimately moved by Barbara Bush and her being a tough broad. I mean that in the best possible way. Decades before that was cool and acceptable, even if you didn't like what she stand for, whatever. Donald Trump is a spiritual leader, and just the question is, what is the leadership should be? (laughs) But where is he? Where is he leading people? Like, what is the example being set? And I see a lot of people being led in a way that is indecent and is mean. The most annoying take from that dinner for me was like you hate that you hate the dinner to begin with. Let's be honest. Well, here's the deal, like. If you saw those jokes and you didn't find them funny, that's fine. If you thought some of them were too mean, that's fine, too. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Right. No big deal. Sure. Leaping from that to, like, this gave Donald Trump such a political gift seemed a little odd to me. Well, I mean, because I think it's, it's like, do, you, do we think that, like, Trump voters anywhere in the country, they were, like, on the edge and then they saw Michelle Wolf and, like, that's it. Now it's really a <laughs> fake news media because this comedian got up there and told jokes. Well, I mean, it's one of the things that you get when you're outside of Washington, D.C., or if you still aren't drinking the water, which is which is there is a, an overinflation of our own importance and how much people are actually paying attention to any of this. And the truth of the matter is that not very many people saw it, not that many people care. The people don't bring it up and – you know, at the end of the day, people are going about their business and they care much more about, uh, you know, health care or the economy or jobs or North Korea or whatever than they do about a comedian. And that's just that's just true one way or the other. And by the way, we do have this discussion every year about whether or not so-and-so comedian went too far. Yes, every every year, year we have this discussion. I mean, Larry Wilmore, uh, the guy last year, I forget his name. I mean, every year there's a discussion of whether – Colbert so- Underbush. 
Colbert under Bush. That was yeah. People like and then they overcorrected. They had a uh, Rich Little the next year. That was not good. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess for me, he does was, a great impression of people who are no longer alive. <laughs> Johnny Carson, Richard yeah. Nixon. His Nixon is great. You got to give him that. I guess. <laughs> That's how I know Nixon. His Wendell Wilkie yeah, is amazing. Wow, it's a. Uh, what a Haldeman he does. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I guess to me, I think there's, there's this decency debate that also feels shallow to me because it almost feels like in the same way that, you know, a PG-13 movie becomes an R movie if you say fuck three times, but you can have the most vulgar and crass and disgusting violence and issues and all of it raised before you get to that R rating. And somehow that room full of people describing her using the word pussy or an insulting joke about Sarah Huckabee Sanders as indecent to me feels like a childish definition of indecent, right? Like that was my problem. Like, okay, some jokes cross the line, but you understand that the conduct of these people, regardless of the words they use, even regardless of the insults, is indecent in a larger way. Like it's it almost like that attacking Michelle Wolf is to pretend we live in a more decent world than we do. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I take your point and I don't disagree that the idea that the word uh, pussy is being used is so shocking today when the reason the word has been mainstreamed in any degree uh, to any degree is because President Trump was on tape saying that he would grab women by the pussy and because he was a celebrity, he could get away with it. I mean, that is much more shocking than the word pussy. The word, you know, the word is a curse word or whatever. And you get and try and make sure my kids are, if they're listening, that you're not allowed to use that word. But, 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 <laughs> but the act of grabbing women, even if he wasn't talking about that body part, if he was talking about any body part, their shoulder, whatever, that is offensive. That is much more offensive. And I agree that there's a forest for the trees thing that happens in Washington, but it's eminently predictable. You know this. It's probably yeah. one of the reasons you guys are all living in California, to get away from it. Yeah, yeah it's pretty good. Also, the weather. Now, nice. we talk about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, 2016 was a very unique and crazy... Very unique. <laughs> I did it, it for you. Uh, election to cover... <laughs> He, he hates very unique. It's a whole thing because you're not supposed to say it. We is that right? We all I get just, it. It's fine. Unique is unique. You don't it's need very. How, what is, how can something be more unique? How can it be more one of a kind? It's very okay. singular. It's good. We have a, a, a whiteboard in my office where I, where I write down things that my producers are not allowed to put in the scripts. And they, I haven't put in very unique, but I have put in. Let's add it now. We have a, a game change, double down, <laughs> uh, <laughs> measuring the drapes, popping the champagne. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Any others? You, can, you feel free to send some in. I'm trying to add some. Oh, this is good. We'll, um, we'll send we'll you some now. Um, I don't we'll think, think very, but that's good. I'll make a mental note of very unique. What <laughs> lessons about journalism did 2016 teach you going into the next presidential campaign, which will also involve Trump and like 25 Democrats running for office? So, first of all, can I this? And I'm going to bring this back to the book, and this is not because I want you to buy my book, although I want you to buy my book, um, dear listener. Buy the but, book. Buy the book. But when I was researching the book, when I was doing all this research, I read this great biography of McCarthy that was written in 1952 when he was still powerful. It was written by Jack Anderson and it was just a just destruction of Joe McCarthy and what a liar he was. And there's a whole chapter in there that I saw, thought was so moving that I, t- I took pictures of it and tweeted it out when I was in the middle of reading it. And it was about how the media, when McCarthy was rising to power, would report his claims, his lies, just as if they were like perfectly normal things to be covering with no fact checking, with no concept that there is empirical truth. And he kept on changing the number of people, of alleged communists in the State Department, this and that. And just remember, like, there were communists in the government and J. Edgar Hoover was bringing them down. Joe McCarthy didn't bring any of them down. Everything he did was a lie. There were commies, though, just just to remind people. But that said, this entire chapter was about 
how the media just let Joe McCarthy rise based on these lies. Then once he was powerful, then the media started looking into the charges and realizing he was lying. And then Joe McCarthy turned around and started calling all the people, calling all the reporters communists. Mm -hmm. And it was just like... I couldn't even believe it. I mean, if you know, yeah, I like, would not have spooky. believed it if, I, if it wasn't a book I was holding in my hands <laughs> yeah. that would had a copyright of 1952. I'd be like, oh my god! So we went through this all before in in more than one way. So I mean, I think that people in the media did not call lies lies enough in 2015, 2016, and we did not call indecency out as much as we could. Now that said, I don't think I did it perfectly, but I did try to do it. The last time I interviewed then-candidate Trump, President Trump, was in June 2016 in this very city when I did the Judge Curiel interview, and mm. I pressed him on, isn't saying he can't do his job because he's of Mexican heritage, isn't that the definition of racism? And he said no, and that was the last time I was allowed to interview him. So, I mean, there were people trying to do it, but did we do it enough? No. But just to also point out some issues... His opponents were supposed to be doing it, and they weren't doing it. His opponents wouldn't do it until they were so far down in the polls it looked desperate and pathetic, as opposed to doing it you know, right out of the gate, just like saying, what he's saying is not true, these are lies, we can't go down this road, etc. By the time people like Jeb Bush or Rubio or Ted Cruz started doing that, they were already losing and it looked bad. It looked pathetic. Jake, the AP reported today that Trump hasn't done a press conference, a full one in a year. February 2017. Can you talk about how much access they're giving? I mean, from my perch, it seems like the occasional foreign leader, one or two questions, right. Fox News, and that's essentially it? Yeah, Maybe I mean, I'm local? not a White House correspondent, and I don't know, but I mean, it seems as though in terms of on-the-record questions, that's it. Like a, in a pool spray, you might get a question or two and one or two during a bilat with a foreign leader. And yeah, it's astounding. I mean, if, if the White House, I mean, look, I'm a member of the White House Correspondent Association and I think I'm like an associate member. And cool. uh, Margaret Tatlev was put in a, she's put in a tough spot. And I, right. I get everything. I get the criticism and I get understand where they're coming from and all that. But let me just say like, that is really offensive. Yeah. <laughs> the president has not had a full press conference since February, 2017. That's nuts. I mean, and but again, everything in this administration, they just break so many precedents and nobody cares. And and the media are the only ones talking about it. So then I feel like that would be the criticism of this statement. OK, you think Michelle Wolf won't cross the line. You need to put out a statement about this issue. Why isn't there a statement every week, another week gone by, no precedent or, or a, a statement more like why does that group of Washington journalists not why are they unable to muster a continuing level of outrage at their own treatment versus the occasional, you know, outsider making jokes or what have you? Have they gotten too comfortable with this new normal? Are they so used to it that they can't sort of pull an emergency, press the emergency button? Again, I'm not the leader of the White House Correspondent Association. You're their yeah, leader. You they follow you <laughs> wherever you, you go. I don't know. There are 400 reporters outside. Just they have no one. They're terrified, Jake. They're just, just in traffic. Some just, of them are wandering off. <laughs> just like just like deer. Jake Sherman almost um, got hit by a car. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry, Jake. So, uh, And I would recommend, honestly, bringing in Olivier uh, Knox, who's the incoming president, to talk to him about this stuff, because I think he'd be much better oh, at yeah. it than, than I. But that said... I think there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than you think. I think there's a lot more pushback than you think. And I think that, um, I mean, Margaret 
when she gave her speech and talked about press freedoms and talked about immigration and talked about, you know, the importance of the First Amendment. I mean, that was she was talking about the Trump White House. Um, she was calling them out in a speech that didn't get a lot of attention. So, I mean, I think there is some of that. But I look, I agree with you. There's also to you what seems decent and normal, which I you know might agree with a lot of in Washington is different because the entire political world is divided into groups and some of them are trying to act as though all of this is normal and there's nothing to see, even when they're winking to you off the record. I'm talking about Republicans. I'm talking about Republican office holders who are all, and this is, I'm going to bring it back to my book again. One of the things about the book you is- say the title every time. The title is uh, The Hellfire Club, available now at <laughs> fine bookstores and Amazon.com. And that, one of the things in the book is- there is a senator, Margaret Chase Smith, a real senator. She's a character in the book. She came out and decried McCarthy in 1950, way before Moreau did, way before anybody did, on the Senate floor. And she was a hero, and she's a hero of mine. And one of the things you look at when you see the history of McCarthyism is Republican senators trying to straddle it. You know, why are you covering, you know, like Robert Taft was a Senate majority leader. He'd be like, why are you covering him? You know, why are you even paying attention to him? Which is the kind of thing I remember hearing in 2016. Why are you even covering Donald Trump? Well, he's the front runner, right. you know, we're <laughs> going to cover him. So, you know, and then Robert Taft dies in 1953. And so now his legacy is largely he didn't stand up to McCarthy. You know, you don't get to write your legacy. Yeah. He thought he would just ride it out. And he would be known for whatever his leadership or whatever. And one of the main things he's known for is he didn't stand up to McCarthy. One and of the craziest things, though, is that after he died, his soul left his body <laughs> and actually floated for several years uh, looking for a new home. And then it found one in uh, this guy named Marco Rubio. When did you become Went into Marco Rubio's body and he went, oh, finally a chance to, oh, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. <laughs> Shit. It's really amazing. Whenever, I mean, it, whenever something pops up on my Twitter feed that is anti Paul Ryan or anti Marco Rubio, you know, you know, I'm where like, it's oh my from. god, look at these three guys. They're obsessed with Marco Rubio and Paul Ryan. They are, are they they were before. You know why? I think that Lovett is particularly obsessed with Rubio. Mm-hmm. Dan definitely wins the Paul Ryan. Oh God, he hates award. Paul Ryan. Yeah. He hates him. It was a, it was a big day on the pod. And we but he, the but, but here's the thing. Also, like Paul Ryan, when all is said and done is going to be known for how he handled Trump. It won't be Medicare reform. No, that's what I'm <laughs> Yeah, he's not. Right. He's, yeah, it's certainly not, certainly not anything having to do with uh, entitlements or social safety net programs. He's, that's going to be part of his legacy, whether he likes it or not. And the same thing with Robert Taft. So you could have done Paul Ryan there, but you hate Marco Rubio so my, with, so with the burning embers of a thousand suns. It's different. I'll tell you, it's very different because I believe... My reason for focusing my ire on Rubio is because I believe Rubio knows better. That's why. You don't think Paul Ryan does? Oh, I think Paul Ryan does. Yeah, see, I, I just... I but, think I think, uh, but I don't think it weighs on Paul Ryan. I think Marco Rubio feels his shame, and you see it on his face. And I think Paul Ryan has killed that part of himself. And so I feel like... Anyway, Marco Rubio, come on the show. We'll talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you did, obviously, a lot of research uh, into the McCarthy era. Do you think the book is called The Hellfire Club? The Hellfire Club. Available now. Yeah, I, you know, I hear you guys doing ads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd like one right now. You want to do one? <laughs> the this whole, what do you think the last 35 <laughs> minutes have been? <laughs> the Hellfire Club. Um, do you think our institutions are more threatened now or were they more threatened in the 1950s? In the now. Era? Now. Interesting. Because. Um, is there because, any historic, what, what historical period do you think maybe the institutions were more threatened then? Or do you think this is a unique emergency I right now? I think they were threatened during Nixon. 
during Watergate. Okay. Uh, but this is unique in what it is. I mean, it's kind of like a combination McCarthy-Watergate. Uh, um, classic, although- classic combo. Classic <laughs> McCarthy-Nixon combo. With a, with a splash of, of, of Bill Clinton. Yeah, Just with sure, a little, sure, little sure, tinge. Sure, sure. Um, uh, so uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the way that President Trump Although the institutions are still standing. I mean, that's the thing. That's yeah. when people come up to me, as I'm sure they do to you, and say, are we going to get through this? Is everything – as of now, you know, Mueller's still on the case. Right. Rod Rosenstein, whatever you think of him, is still deputy attorney general. And there's a lot of people – a lot of criticism for him to go around. But he is still keeping the, the uh, integrity of the investigation going on. The Southern District of New York is, you know, criminal investigation of Michael Cohen. I mean, these things are still standing. Now, President Trump is still railing against them. But um, – the one thing I have seen is, well, I guess two things. One is the degradation of faith and confidence in the media is very upsetting. Um, the idea that that the, the majority of Republicans don't, you know, think that we're the enemy of the American people is yeah. is really saddening. I hope that changes. I hope you know once there's a there's either President Trump changes his tune or there's somebody else uh, in the Oval Office. And then, second of all, it is sad to see the degradation of institutions like the State Department, where people used to be called to service to for a noble cause to to help the United States, to help the relations with the United States around the world, et cetera. And again, all of these institutions, including and especially the press, deserve criticism. And certainly you guys have never held back. But that said, like it's important to have them standing and it's important to have them thriving and improving. And it's sad to see, you know, the State Department as what it is, as opposed to what it could be and should be. You know, you mentioned Joel Anderson, and I I actually just – he did this long interview with Johnny Carson about Nixon, which I happened to watch because we were talking to Kimmel. And in Jack it, Anderson. Jack Anderson. Who's Joel Anderson is his Jewish cousin. Yeah, yeah. Joel, Joel Anderson is his, his <laughs> nephew. Made a real impression on you. Joel Anderson is his nephew who's trying to make it in theater. Anderson. Jack Anderson. Jack Anderson. And he talks about the threat that Nixon poses to institutions. And one of the things he said in the interview was – at no point in reviewing the tapes and no point in reviewing the documents do you find anyone saying, what's the right thing to do? What's the moral thing? What's the, what's good for the country? It was always about how to protect ourselves, how to do this, how to do that. You know, we're all people who worked in government. You've been covering government for a long time. I think we all believe that the people inside the Obama administration were people that were, you know, flawed and selfish in their ways, but ultimately guided by public service. And while I think Bush administration made heinous decisions, I think most of the people inside the Bush administration thought that that's why they were there, too. We would say that's not true of the Trump people, that these are cynical people. They're doing the wrong thing, that they're all of them. I see. I don't think all. So of this them. is my question to you. Do you believe I mean, well, so I guess I would say you think that there are people inside the Trump administration for the right reasons. You think, yes. Do you think Kellyanne Conway is there for the right reasons? Let me tell you the people that I think definitively are in it for the right reasons. And I know you're going to disagree with some of them. OK, I think uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster was in it for the right reasons. I'm going to tell you that I think Dina Powell was in it for the right reasons. I know that's a controversial position with you. Love it. And you can and you can argue it. But but I, I'm going to tell you, I think Dina Powell was in there for the right reasons. I think I think retired General Mattis is in it for the right reasons. Do you think Sarah Huckabee Sanders is in it for the right reasons? Do you think she's uh, doing it for the country? Oh, God, I don't know. What are the right reasons, uh, though? Or is it I need to be here because if I'm not here, someone worse will be here? You know, or because it's clear Dina Powell doesn't agree with half the things that Trump says. She's probably shocked by that, them so much. McMaster, McMaster, and Powell, and and Mattis, um, and Gary Cohn. There's another one. I think these are people who think that they can get in there and help make this work. This is a situation. He's the president for at least four years, if not eight. Let me get in there and try to make this work, and try to make it work as best as it can for the American people. And also, part of that is also. And if I don't do it, 
like who's going to do it? It right. might be somebody who doesn't think this way. Um, and I, I, no, you don't. I mean, maybe. I, look, I give a pretty, I give a lot of leeway to the national security focused people because I know those jobs and how hard they are. But at some point, like we've been talking for a while about the hollowing out of institutions like the State Department, Trump <laughs> acting in bad faith, the lying, the efforts to obstruct justice. At some point, don't you also have an obligation to talk about those things if you've been on the inside and see them? Like, the I idea Powell's on the government anymore. I don't think Gary Cohn was really in it to, to save the world. I think this is an arrogant person who ran Goldman Sachs who thinks, what's the next feather in my cap before I go start a fucking hedge fund or whatever it is. Right? But do you, like, honestly, not, but let me ask you a question. I have no faith in these Okay, questions. so you don't think that, but let me play devil's advocate Please. here for Gary Cohn, who I don't, by the way, know particularly well. I met him I met him over the weekend at the White House Correspondents Association. <laughs> and why were you lighting a candle at a son's bar mitzvah? <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke, everybody. So, but... No one pays attention to this. Do you think that... Do you really think it was a feather in his cap? Do you really think for the, uh, the head of Goldman Sachs going to work for Donald Trump enhances his popularity in the Hamptons and on Wall Street? Because I don't. The final reports about Gary were that he would have stayed if he were offered the chief of staff job. And when he didn't get it, he left. Which to me said this was about him and his climbing the ladder more than it was about the country. Hmm. Well, what about this? I mean, look, I, okay, I, I'll concede. I, I actually was sympathetic to the argument that these are people that needed to be there. Trump is chaotic. There aren't good people around him. The national security jobs are really important. That was what Dina Powell seemed to be suggesting. I'm there because you'd have no idea how bad it would be if I left. But then she leaves and she hasn't said anything. Right? Doesn't if she if if she had an obligation to be there for the country to keep things together. Now that she's left, doesn't she have an obligation to speak out? She's not stopping anything now. She's not at the National Security Council. She's back at Goldman Sachs. Right? Doesn't she have an obligation now to say I did it for the country, but I left because holy shit, you should know about this. It's dangerous what's going on. Well, we don't know why she left, but let me ask you this: because she won't tell us. Let me ask you this: she was leaving. I mean, what if she just wanted to do a year and leave, and she, she knew McMaster was on her way out the door? I, I mean, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Do you think that uh, McMaster and Dina Powell played a role that actually helped with North Korea? Now, I know it's premature on North Korea. We don't know what's going to happen. But there are reasons to be at least remotely optimistic about maybe what will happen. And the McMaster-Powell argument would be, we helped do that. And maybe sometimes it was insane. And maybe sometimes, this is me projecting, and this is not what I say, maybe sometimes we had to like pretend as if a Trump tweet was like part of the plan mm-hmm. but ultimately right well that's what I was going to say it's not like yeah. McMaster or Dina was signing off on the tweet like no, little no, no, rocket no. man I, uh, <laughs> I don't think we can look back on that history and say there was a narrative or a strategy I, I, I genuinely think that they did a good job on sanctions and getting more pressure but I think that any objective look at this says Kim Jong-un has been driving this process he decided to take these steps I seriously doubt well, that the, Trump Ma- the McMaster argument would be to do with it. we provided you know, and obviously it wasn't in a vacuum that, that Obama did stuff and George W. Bush did mm-hmm. stuff and et cetera, et cetera. But we provided one route for them. Stop the, the, the progress you're making for your nuclear weapons program. Get off here. And, and, and we pushed them that way. I mean, all I'm saying is you could argue that maybe what they did was worth it if this ends up. And for it's sure. premature. I'm not Absolutely. saying. Look, I'm not, I, I will say I'm. I wish that McMaster was still there and that John Bolton wasn't. Like, yeah, <laughs> I definitely don't yeah, like that John Bolton's now there instead of McMaster. So I do get the argument that there could be worse. Like, if there's just Trump surrounded by a bunch of awful people, it could be worse than it is now. I mean, I hear you guys joking about uh, on your podcast. I hear you joking about, oh, 
and Don King is going to be going to be nominated to Customs and Border Protection, and, and uh, Lou Dobbs is going to be Secretary of the Treasury, right? I mean, yeah. these are jokes you guys have made, but they're not that. I mean, they're Sean Hannity, Chief of Staff, Year they're Five. A, they're, a, they're, a, but they're, a, but they're. Don't a, say Year Five again in this room. <laughs> There's he might get reelected. You know that. You of know course, that. we're not in the prediction business. Of course, anymore. he might. Yeah. Absolutely, might. Yeah. Let me ask you this. I'm sorry. I'm turning the tables again. I love it. What Democrat is going to win back Pennsylvania in 2020? Because that's what people say. He's not going to get reelected. I'm like, really? Who's going to? I'm from Philadelphia. Who's going to win Pennsylvania? Who, tell me a Democrat that can beat Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. Oh, we're not doing the, uh, we're not handicapping 2020 right You're now. You're not going to do that? Absolutely not. I'm not asking you to list him, but just tell me one Democrat who can win Pennsylvania over Donald Trump. I don't know. A Democrat that goes in there and talks about. That's not a name. <laughs> That's what I don't know yet. Like, I mean, people have been asking me this about the campaign. Like, you have to see, you know this, you have to see these people up on a stage during a debate. 20 people absolutely <laughs> all going at each other oh and God. then on the trail see what mu- their stump speeches are Please. see how they Please. Please. You see what the policies I'm having are. flashbacks you said 20 people I'm having flashbacks to that yeah, Reagan 11. that Reagan debate when I had 11 poor Cory Booker falling like, off the side of the stage <laughs> <laughs> oh my God I mean, it's, it's, Jake, 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 Jake just like senators and governors mm-hmm. calling my name begging for me to call them no more than six on a stage that's yeah. what I said how do you enforce that oh I can't how does how does one make these debates better? Because they became the Trump comedy show. I loved watching them because he would shit on whomever was next to him, and it was funny. But like that didn't add any value to the process. Well, I mean, I think I, I think there was value to the process. I'll say this. I mean, what, while we're talking about uh, the media's mistakes in in 2016, so let me just tell you about that debate. So that debate, we, I just done the undercard debate. Of four people, and then we had the, and then we had the, what a what a culture, an undercard debate. I know. <laughs> well, we're just trying to be fair to. I know, I know. I watched it. It was a good debate. And then, and then it was. It's actually, you know, because you only had four people. It was, it was great. Amazing. Lindsey Graham. It was much more thoughtful debate. And then you have. And then I go to the main debate with eleven people because Carly Fiorina has like muscled her way on stage, but we weren't going to like take away the spot. So the very first question I had was for Carly Fiorina, and it was Bobby Jindal earlier today said he would not feel comfortable with Donald Trump's hand on the nuclear codes how do you feel and she wouldn't play that's for the american people that's for the voters to decide then i go to donald trump because his name has been invoked by me yeah and he starts railing about how Rand paul shouldn't even be there <laughs> on the stage and which is by the way technically not true it should have it was chris christie that shouldn't have been there if we're going by poll numbers. right but yeah. anyway so i'm like well oh my god these guys don't get it they don't get it that it that he he's in the center of the stage he's the front runner he's not going anywhere and you have to explain to people why not and Carly wouldn't do it. So I went to Jeb Bush. Same question. Same whiff. Well, that's for the voters to decide. I'm like, that. he's going to get the nomination. Yeah. yeah. He's going to get the nomination because there's no one willing to take him on. I thought, th- I mean, I obviously predicted the general very wrong. But in the primary, during some of those debates, I was like, yeah, he's, he could get this thing. Wait, in he adi- could easily get this in thing. In addition to, you know, the fact that he was not of Washington and that was right, that there was a popular sentiment in his party at the time, there was just nobody willing to take him on. Yeah. Nobody. Your, to your Pennsylvania question, though, I don't know that this is magic. Like, Connor Lamb won in an extremely conservative district, and I don't think he ran as conservative or to the right as people think he did. No, he, I ran, mean, as he, a, he ran as a, he as ran a, as a we- traditional Democrat. Yeah, a Western Pennsylvania pro-union, pro-gun Democrat. Very heavy. On, I mean, pretty 
it, either at the center of the party or even left on economic issues, especially. That type is very uh, familiar to Pennsylvanians. The you know like a like a Bob Casey Democrat, conservative on a lot of social issues, but ultimately when it comes to economic issues, really about unions and paychecks. And that is a way to win. But tell me who represents that, Joe Biden? Well, I mean, that's exactly, we're gonna have to see who runs and what they say. Like, I don't think all these people's positions are fully formed yet. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is not a person, you're talking about a platform. You're talking about, will the Democratic Party have a set of policies and an agenda that appeals to the people you're talking about that can win in Pennsylvania? And I think that's a challenge, but I think it's a solvable challenge. The only names that I've heard that fit that, and it's just, it's early yet, but the only names that I hear that are, that are like that are like Sherrod Brown, who still has to win, he has to win re-election first, mm-hmm. and maybe Bullock from Montana, well, Governor think, Bullock. Think about, I mean, has Pennsylvania changed, and you're from Pennsylvania, has Pennsylvania changed that much since 2012 when Barack Obama won there? Handily. No, no. So, so like, you know, and, and I think, think of all of the commentary back in 08, when Obama was losing to Hillary in the primary in Pennsylvania, when people were like, "Oh, he's never going to win Pennsylvania." Well, I never thought that because yeah. it's a, because. But I, then again, I, I never thought that <laughs> I would I would live to see a Republican win Pennsylvania again because I thought it was I thought it was just trend. I mean, I was, was I was 19 when a Republican. I'm almost I'm 49 now. I was 19 when a Republican last won Pennsylvania, and then Trump won it. And and no, it hasn't changed uh, that much. Uh, it's just there are a lot of you know this. There are a lot of working class people who feel like Washington has just has shut them out for the last. Thirty years, and Obama and they, cl- feel- they cling to their guns and religion instead. <laughs> <laughs> that, not a not a proud moment for 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 then candidate Barack Obama. Yeah. But but uh, would you mind just repeating the line though? So we have it. <laughs> <laughs> just for editing. Never just mind. For, uh, just, cl- I'm not we just gonna... playing on the preview of the <laughs> Jake Tapper Hellfire Club. You know what? <laughs> but it was the word cling that was the problem. Yeah, it he'll not, say it that. It was not they turn to. He'll say that, or they find comfort that. in. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, but but uh, I don't know. I mean. But this is also the argument when uh, when people talk about talk to me when when Hillary Clinton speaks in India about how Donald Trump won, and the idea that like 200 American counties that voted for Obama twice turned to Donald Trump because there was like this racial racist awakening is nonsense to me, and yeah. you and to you people too, you, you guys too. I'm sure. I think that's I, mean, I, think, there's e- a I lo- think that's too easy. I think that's too easy to say that it's nonsense. I think that. That Donald Trump may have had the ability to kind of reorganize voters and to make racial grievance more salient. And that doesn't... Well, he made explicit racial appeals that Mitt Romney, that John McCain refused to make. And so it is hard to rerun an election with Trump as the Republican candidate in 08 and 12. I mean, I, I, you know, like, but, but the question is, if you're talking about the 10 percent of the voters who switched or whatever it is, 5 percent of the voters in a county, did those people switch from voting for Obama twice because Mitt Romney and John McCain refused to be racist and were not racist. And suddenly this guy was racist. So they went from voting for Obama twice to voting for right. him. Right. Well, that so again, make any sense. It's, it's complicated because it might not be a completely race. A lot of it is anti-immigrant sentiment too. And there, I think there were some people who voted for Obama twice who still were uncomfortable with immigration and too many immigrants in this but but because but obama was able to straddle the issue and mccain and romney didn't make a huge deal of it and trump did and this might have activated that more again but it's it's also like i think there's so many different reasons for this some of it's economic some of it's racial some of it's anti-immigrant i think to make it one simple explanation is but but hillary clinton those comments in india i think were problematic because they did tend to simplify it 
to a degree. And let me just also say that the same day that there was coverage of her her comments in India, there was that story about four million Obama voters not voting. Right. And a third of them were black. And like that's your 80,000 vote margin right there. Well, right. And that's like the other argument to what you're saying about Pennsylvania is like maybe the path is to get someone that can drastically boost turnout in Philadelphia and other parts and get the base more excited and get millennials more excited. I think there's a bunch of ways we can do this. I think the focus of what happened last time has been entirely on sort of white working class communities in places like outside Pittsburgh. And there's other paths to win. That yeah, There's the margin about. you're talking about, because, yeah. I mean, mo- as you know, Obama lost most counties in Pennsylvania. He just won the most yeah. populous. But uh, but Trump just drove up the margins. It would win counties 70, 30, as opposed to, you know, the ones that Obama mm-hmm. lost 55, 45. Yeah. I tend to think it's going to be a mix between getting back some of the people who voted for Obama in 8 and 12 and then didn't vote in 2016 who were disproportionately young and African-American and people of color and women and getting back some of the Obama-Trump voters who uh, have less polarizing racial attitudes than maybe some other Trump voters. <laughs> yeah, but wanted, but thought that Washington had sold them out. Right, I think. So I think it's some of both. I think it's probably going to be some of both. But Obama thought that Washington sold voters out on trade deals. I mean, that was part of his... I mean, I was there in 07. I think I think an anti-Washington message is going to be very important in, for wh- whichever Democrat yeah. runs, which is yeah. why I think, you know, some of these governors, some people who haven't been in Washington long are probably... We'll see. Have but I, I will say this. I mean, uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, as you guys know better than anyone, you underestimate him at your own peril. I mean, he has political gifts and he has political skills and, and he has a way of, of becoming... Of being anti-Washington. I mean, it's always funny when presidents or sitting senators or congressmen run against Washington. But Donald Trump, yeah. you know, that's been his whole thing. Washington's out to get him. He hates it. The deep state, all this stuff. I mean, he's going to lay a claim to that that's going to be a lot easier than Barack Obama being anti-Washington in 2012. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the big lessons, you know, all the ways of slicing and dicing, I think, are obviously important. But to me, like stepping back, whether it's people who didn't turn out for Hillary, who otherwise would have, or people who switched from Obama to Trump, I think one of the lessons we took away from it early on, at least I did, was we need to stop saying that people feel left behind and start saying that people are left behind. Right. Um, And I think that Trump woke people up to just how damaged people's relationship to their government really was. And I think racism is a part of that. I think... Uh, anti-immigration, racism, anti-immigration sentiment is part of that. Misogyny was part of Trump's appeal. But even putting all that aside, I think this larger kind of distrust, I think, is something that we shouldn't ignore and actually is something Trump exploited. He didn't create it. Right, exactly. And also that he's not wrong necessarily in some of the sentiments. I mean, it's really hard to look at some of the decisions made about trade in the 90s and the aughts and not conclude, you know what, they were really, they were selling American jobs down the river but doing so in a way that would help corporate profits and Wall Street. And I mean, it's just true. I mean, probably, I mean, blaming NAFTA is silly in a way because it was kind of just a wash. But if you look at, you know, most favored nation status for China, that's what sent all those jobs overseas. And, yeah. and But it's just, I think it's even bigger. I think NAFTA is too small, but even trade as an issue is, is too small. I mean, like th- there has been no president, Democrat or Republican, who has figured out a way to help people succeed at a time of globalization and automation. Right. And yeah. like Obama used to talk about this all the time, you know, he got us out of the crisis and back to normal, but normal still wasn't great <laughs> before the crisis started in 2008. It's stagnant wages for what, 30, you know, 30 years now. Right. And and obviously the way Trump talks about it, you know, you I mean, you can go back to the creation of container ships uh, or automation. I mean, there are all these reasons why these jobs are going overseas. 
and there hasn't been the solutions that we need. I mean, I, I remember Obama talking about it, about, about uh, re-education is the wrong word. Re work or retraining. Yeah. Yeah. Re-education is that's that's what, that's communist what, uh, China. That's what, that, those are the camps Trump's building in Missouri. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, no, but I mean, like, work or retraining, I remember him talking about that. But there wasn't enough investment on that. I'm not saying it's Obama's fault, but there wasn't enough investment mm -hmm. in that. And there wasn't, you know, and Congress wasn't as committed to it because... And this is, you know, one of the problems with Washington is that so much about it is money and so much about it is getting money from rich people and rich corporations. And they are more vested in their bottom line than, than they are in the future of the country and making sure that there are jobs in these factory towns that have been decimated. But even putting aside, you know, put aside the way, the, the way money drove the decision and it did, I think that there was a legitimate belief like, oh, this is actually just a hard problem because of, because of communications that – that trade creates incredible diffuse benefits for the society as a whole, and it does have these acute harms to lost right. jobs, but that's a price worth paying. And I think Washington got too complacent about making that argument. And I think so, one is I think Democrats are trying to figure out a better way to talk about trade, but also two, I think one thing Trump has done is let people think, well, you know, maybe that deal isn't a deal people want to make. Even if you think it's the right thing, even if you think trade is on the whole good, mm -hmm. that deal of we're going to lose some jobs, but it'll be worth it because the overall benefits of the economy, I think... People like Sherrod Brown and others are saying, well, hold on a second. I don't think that's a deal that's going to win us votes or even is good policy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so look at this. We're all finding common cause. Talking Amazing. about the wisdom of Donald Trump on trade. I just want to break a couple in. A couple with, of straight shooters. I just want to break in with some, some breaking news from Donald Trump's press conference. Oh, no, uh, no, no, he what? said, quote, people don't realize what a big country Mexico is. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Can you tell me how many how many acres it is, Tommy? How many you were spokesman for the National <clears throat> Security Council. How many acres is acres. Mexico? <laughs> acres. Do it, it's, acres. A, uh, it's a Texas plus Nebraska. <laughs> is that true? I have no, you have no idea. That was good, though. That sounded so confident. Thank you. Thank you. Even the former spokesman for the National Security Council, Obama, has no, no idea. idea. Geography I minor. I think, once again, <laughs> Dude, geography minor? No. <laughs> is that a minor? What is that? You were a philosophy major? Buy a map. <laughs> well, we, we don't talk about my useless major here, John. Just um, kidding, philosophy people. You got very mad at Dan <laughs> yeah, one time. I was, I was kidding. Yeah, Dan I got a lot. Of, Dan got very attacked for that. Uh, Tommy thinks, therefore he is. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Jake Tapper, thanks for joining us on Pod Save America. The book is The Hellfire. The Club. Hellfire Club available at fine bookstores and on Amazon.com. And thank you for coming, even though you are bandaged and sutured from. Michelle Wolf's speech. Uh, you barely were able to make it up the stairs. We carried you down. It looks as though you cried all night. That's you a smoky eye. Wept. <laughs> nice. I wept. I wept. Everyone yeah. go buy the book. Buy the book. It's good. We have so many copies around here in Crooked Media. Thanks, guys. And, and uh, I have to say, like, you know, when Jen Psaki's at my round table, and we, we but like, look how successful those guys are. Those little yeah. pishers. Smoke and mirrors. Those little, those little Obama bros are all grown up and running a media empire. They're like, California. why the fuck are people listening to that? <laughs> Uh, no, we don't say that. We're just like, look at, oh my God, could you believe it? Yeah, well. Look, if you want to host a podcast, we should talk. I don't want to host a podcast, but okay. I, but um, <laughs> when you guys come to Washington, uh, you should come on my show. Okay, cool. Yeah, We'd, love, yeah, yeah, We'd yeah. love to have you. Your show's the only show. It's too, it's, too, it's too hard to ever do it from out here because we'd have to wake up too early. <laughs> <laughs> no, so but next time we're in D.C., let's do it. All right. I'd love to have you guys. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Buy the book. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 
Wars take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. On the pod today, the host of Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. DeRay, welcome back. Yeah, it's good. I haven't talked to you guys in forever, so here we go. It's good to be back. I know. It's good to talk to you. Congratulations, by the way, on winning a Webby Award for Best News in Politics podcast. That is outstanding. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, it's like a... I remember a year ago when we first had the conversation about starting a podcast together and like, look where we've come. So it's cool. And it's cool too, because the news that we do on the podcast is like the overlooked news, you know, like it's not Trump. It's a lot of the other stuff that people just don't think about. So it was cool to get cool to get the award. And today, because people are listening to us on Tuesday, today is the launch of season two of Pod Save the People, right? It is. It's been a whole year, which is which is sort of wild. So season two, we have Brene Brown coming back to like round out the conversation we had at Riverside Church not too long ago. And then the news crew, uh, per usual, got a new song, got a new logo. So it's good. I'm pumped. The new logo is cool. I want, I'm excited for people to see the new logo. Me too. And the new, the new jam is like, like much more hip-hoppy. I love it. Oh, that's exciting. I haven't heard that. So, speaking of under-the-radar news that you guys often cover, I wanted to talk to you about one story that you brought up. Prosecutors in Seattle have asked that more than 500 convictions be abolished for people with charges on their records for carrying small amounts of marijuana. City officials announced on Friday they filled a motion to vacate the convictions and drop the charges. The mayor, Jenny Durkin, announced earlier this year that the city would be making the move. Uh, All of these people were convicted before Washington moved to legalize recreational use as a state. Duray, what do you think about this? And is this now going to be a trend with other cities and states that are legalizing marijuana? Yeah, so Seattle's actually following on the footsteps of Philadelphia that vacated about 50 criminal charges uh, not too long ago with the new DA, Larry Krasner, which is which is dope. You know, Washington has made about like $730 million, or they will make that much, $730 million over the next two years from legalized marijuana. So it's such a profitable industry and like you still see people in jail for making profits when it wasn't being taxed the way that it is. What I didn't know about marijuana though is that did you know that there's only one federally approved grow facility in the country? It's at the University of Mississippi. It's one of the reasons why the research on medicinal marijuana is actually pretty slow because there's literally only one place in the country where it can legally happen. But DeRay, on the other hand, I've been conducting tests for quite some time. I don't think the CDC can use or the FDA can use your tests, uh, no. but I'm sure you're an expert. And uh. I didn't know. Did you know that marijuana-based businesses can't? A lot of them can't open um, bank accounts, like checking accounts, because yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. How'd you know that? Um, How do you know that, John? <laughs> <laughs> I just I've read about it. Oh, he's read about it in his book. He's read about it in books. <laughs> um, but I will say, no, it is pretty outrageous, especially, I mean, now in, they've legalized it in California, and you see uh, a lot of these stores now popping up all over LA, and it's these, like, there are these fancy marijuana stores, they look like, you know, Apple stores from outside, and, and everyone's lining up, and people are buying marijuana, and you're like, 
I cannot believe right now that this is going on and there are people in jail and they have been in jail for years for doing the same thing when it wasn't legal. Like, it does seem like we have to move now towards abolishing most of these convictions um, as marijuana starts becoming decriminalized and legalized. Yeah, and the other insidious thing about it is that in a lot of places that have even legalized it, if you've been convicted of a crime formally, you aren't able to obtain a license to legally sell, you know? which is even wilder, right? So like you get out, you serve your time, but because you have a criminal past, like you can't get a license to sell legally. And it's like, well, you sold illegally and you know how to do it. Like, you know what you're doing. And I didn't know that in some places it's taxed up to 25%. Isn't that intense? That's like, so the government's making a killing off of this. Yeah, well, it's almost as if I think, in part because it's still a federal crime, in part because of just general sheepishness, it's being legalized, but we're not legalizing it when when we legalize it, we're not saying, and it was immoral when it was illegal. Like when we've gotten rid of other kinds of laws that were punitive, especially towards people of color, there's been a recognition that we were getting rid of those laws in part because of the way in which they were unfairly distributed and hurt people. But we're not doing that now. Like the recognition that pot should be legal seems to not be coming with also the recognition that a lot of people were punished unfairly. No, you're right. And people, it's interesting that it's like the double speak. They're like, oh, yeah, legal now for people over 21. And then you're like, well, what about the people locked up? And it's like, well, it was a crime then. And you're like, yeah, that was like six months ago. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't like 30 years ago. This is it's recent. It's also just so like, it's, a, it's almost authoritarian. It's like, well, yeah, were they wrong or was the law wrong? Because I feel like we decided that the law was wrong. So maybe we ought to let these people out. Yeah, and it plays on like those st- this idea that like, criminals are bad people, right? Like that's such a ingrained stereotype in people's minds. It's like, yeah, just because they got convicted of, of that thing doesn't actually mean they were a bad person that like, or any of that stuff that like, we know that laws have been, been wrong in a host of cases. Like, you know, you hear me talk about a lot, like theft over $300 in Florida is a felony. It's like when most people think about felons, they, they would say like murderers and bank robbers. And it's like, I don't know if stealing, like an iPad makes you is like what most people think of felons being, you know, 20 right. grams of marijuana. Yeah. 20 in floor. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So is this always going to be up to officials like DAs and prosecutors uh, to make this decision? Or are there other do you know of any like legislation that's out there to sort of get rid of these convictions? I mean, this seems like something like we get on a ballot initiative at some point. Like, wh- what do you know about uh, different efforts to sort of stop this? Yeah. So so the DAs can work to vacate criminal convictions. Uh, the legislatures could pass laws that just, just automatically do it, which is huge. The citizen-led petitions are important. Remember, not every state has the opportunity to do citizen-led petitions. It's like just a fraction. Not even half of the states have citizen-led petitions. States like my own, like Maryland, uh, the only petition you can do is like to null and void a law that got passed. You can't actually propose a new law through citizen-led petitions. So that's sort of an interesting tool in some places and not in other places. Uh, And you can just get elected officials who will instruct the police department just not to enforce it, right? It's almost every single branch can be a lever here to change this. That's good to know. So, DeRay, who's in the show this week? What are you guys talking about? We have Brene Brown, who's like a, she's a follow-up to uh, the conversation she and I had at Riverside Church. This is like a, a deeper dive into thinking about the intersection of race and trauma and joy. And so we talk about a lot, which I'm excited about. And then we have some cool guests uh, coming up. I know that on the the newsletter you shared that Senator Gillibrand uh, introduced a new piece of legislation based on uh, one of the Potsy of the People episodes. So we'll have her back on at some point and, and the experts she talked to. So I'm excited about season two. 
I want to emphasize how cool it is because this is a piece of legislation that emerged because of a conversation you guys had on the show. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. She even, re- her team reached out to the expert Mercer who was on the show. They met, they like, they figured it out. And the bill around postal banking is huge uh, because it could actually make sure that everybody has access to a bank in a way that people don't know. Yeah, it's great. I mean, because, and there's post offices in every single community. So it's a perfect place to do that. And there are other countries that have already done postal banking. I had no clue until I talked to the expert about it. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I dug into the whole thing. Um, Well, you guys are doing great work on the pod. We're excited for season two. And thanks for coming by and saying hi. Boom. Great to be back. And I'll talk to you guys soon. All right, Dre, take care. Don't let the webby go to your head. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Jake Tapper. Thanks to DeRay McKesson. Thanks to us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to us especially. Thanks to you, John. (laughs) Thanks to you, Leo. What are you looking at, Leo? He's just sort of staring at me. We apologize. Obviously, Leo did make some noise during the Jake Tapper interview, (laughs) which which John would love to deny, but he can't because what happens. And, uh... Pundit was crying. Oh, don't you... Until Jake picked her up and took that... You know what? This is like when Rubio tried to behave like Trump. It didn't work. People aren't buying it. We all know Leo made the the noise. Elijah's got got the... Have I said Pundit never barked? Is that the claim I've never made? Are we still in the outro? Is there music beneath us? still in the outro. Yeah, it's just playing. It's playing us out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. We'll see you Thursday. Maybe. Take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.